RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 336, The Way of the Warrior. Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week, our mission continues, examining every episode of Star Trek, picking apart the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, kicking off Season 4 of Deep Space Nine with The Way of the Warrior, a.k.a. How Worf Got His Groove Back. And to do this story justice, no mere single episode can contain Klingon honor of this magnitude. It's Star Trek, but longer. It's a supersized episode, tailor-made, for a fairly large tonal shift in the series. <laughs> Nicely done. How Worf got his groove back. I love it. <laughs> playing the alternate title game right away. I dig it. Hey, uh, I would love to drop some trivia on you and on our listeners. But before I do that, why don't you tell the people listening at home or or in their cars, or in their showers, I don't know where they listen to us, how they can chat with us. Well, if you'd like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. All right, Norman, without further ado, a little trivia for The Way of the Warrior. Well, this episode was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. I don't think they really need more introduction or detail to our audience, but uh, what is interesting to talk about is lots of changes right up front here in Season 4, not the least of which was adding Worf, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, but from the writer's perspective, there is a, a piece of trivia from Terry J. Erdman's book uh, that I really appreciated. So the plot line of this episode, they felt like, really was easy to put together, but what took longer was planning Worf's arc for DS9. Uh, so this is what was neat. Now, the, the story almost came secondary because they figured, all right, we're going to get from point A to point B. But what they wanted to do is say, all right, we've got Worf. What will his relationship to everybody else be? Where do we see this character going? And that actually took the bulk of their time to plot that out before they even got into the stories here. And I, I, I'm really gratified to hear that. I love it when you go character first. And then the stories just kind of write themselves because you know where you want those characters to go. Now, the episode was directed by James L. Conway. He kind of looked at this episode as his audition piece for the feature film First Contact, which we know he did not get to direct because that job went to Jonathan Frakes. Uh, previously, though, on DS9, he had directed Duet and Necessary Evil in addition to three episodes of Next Gen. Now, when this originally aired in October of 1995, it ran as one long episode. 
In subsequent broadcasts, it was broken up into two parts, uh, but most home video options these days keep the full-length version intact, including some scenes that were trimmed for time when it was split. May I interject here for the second time? I would love it if you did, yeah. When I watched it on Amazon Prime, because that's how I'm streaming my Deep Space Nine, it actually has it as one bulk episode of 90-something-odd minutes. So when you said that we were doing Way of the Warrior 1 and 2, (laughs) I was like, oh, mm, there are two episodes. (laughs) Right. And for all the people out there, they're like, why didn't you know that, Norm? It's like, because I am watching this for pretty much the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, same here. And I believe on DVD and I know that on Netflix and I believe that on uh, CBS and, and elsewhere, they do show it now as one single episode because, well, in today's day and age, we're just not worried about commercial breaks and running time and that kind of thing. But uh, right after this episode aired in October of 1995, pretty much as soon as it went into syndication after that, it was always split up. So most people who watched it from, say, 1996 on until home video, they were watching it split into uh, one and two. So they might have missed out on some scenes at that time. Um, Hey, we do get some new opening credits here. New version of the theme, new effects, more ships, a shot of the Defiant. Uh, Dan Curry did this work as he had done on the original opening credits and just included a lot more CG effects here. Uh, Of course, we love Dan, and he has had his fingerprints on a lot of Star Trek, not just uh, their opening credits work. You know, one of the things that struck me funny, though, and again, as a new viewer per se Mm -hmm. uh, to Deep Space Nine, is that because this episode introduced such a, a pivotal character in the next generation and now transferring over to Deep Space Nine, I found it just slightly distracting that... Spoiler red alert that Michael Dorn <laughs> was part yeah. of the part of the opening sequence credits because I know that he has to be in there contractually, but I was kind of waiting for, okay, where's the Michael Dorn moment? Where's the Michael Dorn moment? When's Worf going to step on the promenade? Yeah. And it kind of did distract me a little bit from the, I guess, just the normal cadence of where I thought episode this episode was going to unfold. Hmm. Yeah, that, so you're saying they, they could have actually left that out uh, if they wanted to build the suspense, build the surprise, and really let it be a wow moment. I mean, you can leave James Earl Jones out of the uh, credits of Star Wars as Darth Vader, as they did the, the first time around mm-hmm. uh, when Star Wars came out in 77, and you're just like, wow, it, just, that's just a, a, a big, scary guy with a big, scary voice. <laughs> and then, then later, you give him the credit, you know? Yeah, I, I, I could I could see that. Absolutely. Um, now, at the very top of this episode, you'll notice dedications. Uh, one to writer's room assistant Greg Duffy Long and one to hairdresser Ronald W. Smith, both of whom who had been with DS9 and uh, passed away uh, between the end of the third season and the beginning of the fourth. Uh, so they did do that dedication at the top of this one. Um, on the production side, we welcome John Eaves. Now, we mentioned the end of Jim Martin's run as an artist uh, illustrator on DS9, and now John E. steps in here and continues on through Enterprise and, sure enough, makes the jump to feature films. I believe he worked on eight of the Star Trek feature films and even Star Trek Discovery later. So John Eves, another person with a uh, fingerprint all over latter-day Star Trek. And this episode gets an Emmy Award nomination for visual effects, 
Now, interesting, the winner that year was Gulliver's Travels on NBC, uh, but some really good competition across the board. You had Space Above and Beyond and uh, Young Indiana Jones in that mix. And uh, one thing here that is fun to mention about the uh, visual effects, the Klingon fleet. Uh, they took a page right out of TOS, and they used commercially available items like toys and models and even the uh, Hallmark keepsake ornaments of mm -hmm, uh, Birds mm -hmm. of Prey and just you know, got all they could. Of course, gave them a paint job, put in lights where they needed to put in lights. Uh, but really a time saver instead of having to do multiple, well, A, build multiple models and, uh, and B, do multiple passes with a camera. Well, here you could set up uh, several shots with multiple ships in the same shot. And then they use those less expensive models to do the explosions and all the, the fight scenes. And I love reading that, you know, one of their go-to items is glitter. You just you fill like an AMT Ertle kit with a bunch of glitter, explosives. You film it with a super fast camera, and boom, you have special effects. I, like, I, I love it when a multi-million dollar show can do cheap effects like that. I, I have three responses to what you just said. Okay. <laughs> One, I, I just felt all of my bones creak when you said Space Above and Beyond. Yes. Which was on Fox. <laughs> yes. And the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Yes. Because crack, crack, crack. <laughs> These are like older <laughs> shows. Right. The yeah. And um, the other thing was that with the uh, using like different models – I find that interesting that um, I know a lot of people want to have Deep Space Nine up, uh, I guess, upscaled to Blu-ray and HD. Hmm. Do you think that those would stand out as Ooh. as those elements if they did? Because they're yeah. the the video quality is actually really good on the DVDs, and you're actually seeing a lot of kind of like the makeup seams, like on Quark's nose and kind right. of like where the ridges on um, uh, Michael Dorn's makeup on his prosthetic kind of like right. stop. So I'm just wondering if those things would probably be a little bit more of an eyesore if they are, a, in, in fact, up, upscaled to 4K. Yeah, yeah, they, they may really well be. And, and you may end up in a position with, like, uh, Next Gen, where even if they could do it, you'd have to go back to those elements and really sweeten those to make them work. Um, boy, that's, that is a tough one. That, that would, I think this episode in particular, because you have a lot of effects on a lot of ships, um, DS9 tends to look very dark, and I don't just mean that thematically. I mean, the actual shots uh, typically look very dark. And you can kind of buy it when you're just seeing these small sort of blurry ships in the background sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they were front and center in 4K, boy, that that would be really tough. E even in 1080, uh, that might be really tough to see. And the third point is Star Trek history is no stranger to glitter in the effects. Yeah. A lot of transporters, TOS. <laughs> TOS, yes, yes, a right. classic, yeah. Why yeah. I can't remember who it was telling me that they found the original effect of that, the original film of that, and then used it later on. Um, uh, maybe it was the Dan Curry episode of Mission Log Live that we had him on, just saying, like, yeah, they got those original film elements, and sure enough, it's glitter just being sprinkled, and there you go. <laughs> Now, guest stars for this episode, as we get to say welcome back to many recurring Trek guest stars. Uh, of course, we have Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates. We have Robert O'Reilly as Gowron. We have Mark Alimo as Gul Dukat, uh, the usual suspects, as it were. But we have some newish faces here worth pointing out as well. Patricia Tallman, she who has been a long-running stunt performer for Star Trek and is often under many layers of complicated prosthetic alien makeup. Well, here she has a scene on The Defiant looking much more like herself. We have Christopher Darga playing Klingon Commander Kabok, 
And while this is the first time we're seeing him, it won't be the last, well, as different characters. He'll turn up on Voyager, uh, then as a Klingon again on Enterprise. You may also know him, this killed me, as the voiceover MC on Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. And then uh, Martok's son, Drex, is played by Obi Nefo, and this episode of DS9 is his first professional on-screen credit, but he'll be back for one more track on Voyager. He is also known for the recurring character of Ragnar on Stargate SG-1, and you see they like their names with random apostrophes on Stargate <laughs> just as well. Uh, and, and you may be asking yourself this, and people in our audience may be asking themselves this, Drex, yes, that is indeed a tip of the hat to Doug Drexler. Uh, very often his nickname, Drex, somebody saw it, they're just like, perfect, that'll make a Klingon name. And uh, Doug was very happy to see that make it into the show. And finally, we get to say hello again to J.G. Hertzler. Now, this is the very first time we've met Martok, but not the first time that we've seen J.G. He appeared in the DS9 pilot Emissary as a Vulcan, but clearly it's the Klingon uh, that sticks because we'll see Martok a full 25 more times on DS9, and that does not include Martok's appearances in video games or J.G.'s appearances as other characters in Voyager and Enterprise. Yeah, not to skip too far ahead with Enterprise, but when I saw him as the Klingon Arbiter that defended Archer, uh-huh. I just love the fact that he played a Klingon then yeah. and brought like a completely new voice to yeah. the Klingon. I thought that and, was really, really brilliant. And he has a very distinctive voice. So, mm-hmm. yeah. If anyone plans to blow up any model starships full of glitter, please don't do it near my logic board. Prologue. Tensions are high on DS9 while everybody plays a round of Catch the Changeling. Odo has them running drills to prepare for the inevitability that one or more of his people will infiltrate the station at some point. All they have to do is rewind to the last episode where the same situation wreaked havoc on the Defiant. There's that plus new security features and retrofitting of the station, just to be sure. There is time to wind down, though, just as Captain Sisko does over dinner with Cassidy Yates. Dinner has to wait, though. There is a guest just arrived at DS9, one General Martok and the Klingon flagship Nevar. He and his crew have traveled a long time and asked for shore leave, which Sisko grants. Then a whole lot more Klingon ships decloak, right around that station. Act 1. While the Klingons are quietly enjoying their time in Quarks, something that really weirds out Quark, Martok is letting Sisko and Kira know just what's up. That is, after a test of each one of them cutting their palms with a knife in order to bleed a little and prove they aren't changelings. Martok is there to offer the assistance of the Klingon Empire to fight alongside the Federation against the Dominion, Sisko says thanks, but there isn't any indication that Dominion are up to something right now. Martek says it'll come, just wait, and they'll be ready. On the promenade, you've got some Klingons lurking around. One in particular, Drex, is giving the eye to everyone. In the replimat, Odo and Garrick are having a nice conversation about Odo's trick, being able to drink and then produce his own coffee to give the illusion that he's drinking... You. 
The conversation turns to the recent tumult on Cardassia, where the Obsidian Order collapsed, but all that is overshadowed by Drex and his Klingon goons picking on... Wait, Morn? Of all people, they're picking on the quiet guy, Morn? Odo and Garrick break it up, but the Klingons still seem a little teed off. So teed off that a bunch of them, led by Drex, show up at Garrick's shop a little later and give the scaly one a brutal beating. Act 2. Garrick will be fine after being tended by Dr. Bashir. The thugs broke several bones, but the tailor has decided not to press charges. Neither of them really know why the attack happened in the first place. Meanwhile, Sisko is getting a report from Kira that they're having trouble knowing just how many Klingon ships are there since they keep cloaking and decloaking. Just then a message comes through from Cassidy Yates that her ship is under attack. Only thing to do is launch the Defiant and try to rescue her. Arriving on the scene, there's a Klingon ship with a tractor beam on Yates's freighter. The Klingon commander tells Sisko that he has orders from Gowron himself to inspect every ship leaving Bajoran space, seal its cargo, and run genetic tests on the occupants to flush out any changelings. Just one thing, though... Kira points out that they have no jurisdiction here, to which Commander Kabok says he's not really keen, and your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. How rude. Sisko launches a warning shot to get their attention, and it does. With the Defiance phasers locked on the Klingon's engines, Kabok goes away in a huff, saying Gowron will hear about this. Captain Yates is safe, much to Sisko's relief, and she goes on her way. Later on DS9, General Martok brings Sisko a little gift, Kabok's dagger, which means Kabok has been executed for disobeying orders, which means the next encounter is going to be way more difficult. Then it strikes Sisko as he's talking to Dax that what he needs is a Klingon to handle the Klingons. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you a man you've known for all these years, the one and only Commander Worf wearing his silver band. Act 3. So, where you been? How are things? The Enterprise was destroyed at Viridian 3, and Worf has been in a Klingon monastery trying to find his place in life now that his home is gone, and he's thinking about quitting Starfleet. Other than that, fine. Sisko says he's needed here on DS9, and Worf says he's prepared to do his duty to get to the bottom of just what the Klingons are doing there. First stop is Quark's where Worf is ready to get crazy with a glass of prune juice and a single throw on the dartboard. Drex and his goons come in next, and Worf is ready to put this punk, Martok's son, in his place, walking away with his diktach dagger. Later in his quarters, Worf is putting away his stuff, his mechleth, a family picture of the kid, Albert, uh, the Alphonse, uh, uh, starts with an A, as if on schedule, Martok shows up demanding his son Diktach back, and Worf says sure. He just did it to get Martok's attention, and he puts the general in his place about all these dishonorable actions of late. Martok pushes back, though, says what he's up to is for the good of the Empire, orders from Gowron, and he won't let Worf interfere. It's a tense meeting that has Worf so worked up that he's got to go work it out with... Skeletor. Yes, Skeletor is back in a hollow suite workout program. Dax enters, though, and she says she's there to give him a real challenge, wielding a batleth with great skill. Worf does overpower her, though, and Dax pushes him about what he's found out. The answer 
is nothing. Nobody in the know has let on anything with Worf. She says he may be looking in the wrong place. Maybe he needs to talk someone who owes him. Cut to Worf and a very aged Klingon, Huraga, having many drinks of blood wine and singing. Huraga's family honor was saved by Worf's father, Moog, and the old man agrees to tell Worf why the Klingon force is here. The real reason. Because it'll be a glorious battle, and Worf deserves that. The information puts Worf in quite a conundrum. Odo, who knows everything, knows that Worf has been sending messages to the Klingon homeworld, then all that stopped. He's obviously torn about his loyalty to Starfleet and his loyalty to his people. Regardless, Odo tells him he's got to tell Sisko which side he's on. Worf does his duty, telling Sisko that the Klingons are there to attack Cardassia, which is now vulnerable after all the political upheaval. The civilians have overthrown the central government, but the Klingons believe it's a Dominion plot. Thus, they are protecting the Alpha Quadrant by a first strike. This is so not cool. Sisko takes it right to Martok, who says they have no choice. The change in government is all the proof they need that the founders have orchestrated what's happening on Cardassia. They'll invade, and Sisko says the Federation cannot participate in or condone their plan. It's an invasion based on nothing. Martok leaves, saying he'll confer with Gowron, which he doesn't do because the order is given for the Klingon ships to make their way to the heart of the Cardassian Empire. Act 4. The Federation hasn't heard from Gowron. Bajor is aligning with the Federation. That leaves everyone on DS9 in the position of being able to do nothing about Cardassia. Except maybe undercover. Sisko invites Garrick to come in and take his measurements for a new suit, coincidentally while he's talking over the Klingon plan with his senior staff. Of course, Garrick takes the hint and calls up his old friend, Gold Dukat, to let him know how many Klingons are on the way. The first round is bleak. Klingons overrun outlying Cardassian colonies, but with the new information, the Cardassians are able to rally somewhat better defenses. Worf says Martok will stop at nothing short of victory, though. Sisko has some bad news. Word from the Federation is that diplomatic ties with the Klingons have been cut, and what's more, the Kittimer Peace Accord is out the window. Sorry, Kirk. All this is interrupted by the arrival of Gowron himself at DS9, and boy is he happy to see Worf. We'll sing together, we'll fight together, we'll invade Cardassia together. Act 5. Worf tells Gowron his loyalty is to the Federation, and when Gowron threatens to take away everything Worf has, still, Worf says he would have his honor. At Quark's, Worf is brooding over his decision and reminiscing with Chief O'Brien about the Enterprise. Worf belonged there, and now with it gone, he's a man without a home, without a purpose. O'Brien says, well, what about his son? And Worf can only say that Antonio, or whatever, is happy living with his grandparents on Earth. He feels like he'd be a distraction to Sisko's mission, and even feels like a burden to Quark's bar when Quark makes a snide comment about the Klingons being gone. Sisko, to his credit, doesn't accept Worf's resignation just yet. There's a crisis with the Klingons to be dealt with right now, and Sisko needs good officers. The crisis is now worse with the Klingons breaking through Cardassian defenses. They're a couple of days away from Cardassia Prime itself, and Sisko puts in a call to give them warning. Who should pick up but Gul Dukat, 
who is now part of the civilian government because, well, sure, that's where the work is now. The situation is bad, and if the Klingons make it there, they'll wipe out the government and install their own leader. Sisko offers to send a rescue, though. Prepping to leave on the Defiant, Sisko tells Kira to stick around and make sure the station's defenses are in order. There's also Cassidy Yates, who happens to be back, and offers a farewell to Ben before his mission. Well on their way, the Defiant travels through the Alpha Quadrant under cloak, expressly violating their agreement with the Romulans because, eh, what the heck. In short order, they come across the debris of destroyed Cardassian ships. The Defiant can't stop to look for survivors, though. They would have to decloak, and it's likely there are already cloaked Klingons waiting nearby. They move on. A distress signal from Goldicott comes through. His ship is under attack by three birds of prey, and Sisko gives the order to decloak, raise shields, and arm weapons. Act 6. There's Klingons on the starboard bow, starboard bow, you know the rest. The fighting starts immediately, and Dukat's ship is completely disabled. Sisko will have to risk dropping shields and taking nearly two minutes to beam over their Cardassian council members. It works, though, with some trouble along the way. In the fighting, the Defiant shields and cloak are disabled. They got what they came for, though, and now head back to DS9, followed by a couple of Klingon ships. Back at the station, Kira and O'Brien hear from Sisko, time to raise shields and put those new systems to the test. Once the Defiant crew are back on board and realizing that there are dozens of Klingon ships ready to attack and relief from Starfleet is far away, the command is given to go to battle stations. Act 7, and whoa, what a battle it is! Wait, 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 John. Yeah. Don't forget... The very calm and orderly preparation first. Oh, oh, right. Uh, There is a lot of very calm and orderly preparation with DS9 senior staff sharing best practices for fighting invading Klingons. Odo offering to protect the infirmary, Cork realizing his weapon was used by Rom for spare parts. Then Martok and Gowron show up on screen with one last appeal to Sisko. Hand over the Cardassian council members. Cardassia is better off under Klingon rule. If not, they'll be taken by force. Sisko warns that they've really amped up their defenses on DS9 in the last year to the tune of 5,000 quantum torpedoes. So be it, Gowron says today is a good day to die. Act 8. Okay now, pew 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 on a massive scale. Every Klingon ship you've ever seen starts firing at DS9, but DS9 is fighting back something fierce. Phasers, torpedoes, everything. Cisco has activated the Death Blossom, but the Klingons are relentless, taking shot after shot. A few hits near Ops, and even poor Wilhelm screams as he's thrown over a railing. Now it's time for the close-up combat. Klingons start beaming onto the station in waves, groups of them ready to fight, but the station personnel are prepared, giving as good as they get. Batless are flying, phasers are firing, and Ops Kira gets shanked in mid-battle. Miles takes a blow, and you better believe Dax gets in some good use of the Batleth, too. On the monitor, Gowron says it's time for Sisko to surrender, but au contraire, mon frere, Sisko says the Klingons on board are contained and Federation reinforcements are on their way. Gowron can't fight off the Federation and Cardassia. Isn't stopping now the honorable thing to do? Martok is indignant, 
but Cisco and Worf point out that the Dominion wants the Alpha Quadrant to be torn apart, to be easier to conquer. Gowron sees the logic. He's ready to stand down, even while Martok would rather fight on. So the shooting is stopped, but Gowron says this is the day the Federation sided against the Klingon Empire, and it won't be forgotten. As DS9 gets back to normal, Sisko pays a visit to Worf. Looks like Worf is packing up, ready to resign his commission. But Sisko tells him a story about feeling lost after the death of his wife and how he thought he could escape the pain by leaving Starfleet. Worf hears it and takes some time to think it through. Later in Ops, we see the new strategic operations officer, Lieutenant Commander Worf, arrive in his new red uniform. A message to DS9 from Cardassia Prime, Dukat and the civilian Datapa Council are grateful for the assistance. So all is good, right? Oh, just one more thing. The Klingons are keeping the Cardassian colonies they just invaded and setting up defenses, so... Sleep tight, everyone. The end. And thunderous applause. <laughs> wow. It's, John, that was a Herculean task. It, it's a big story. And, yeah. and and as much as we try to like boil it down, every now and then there's a scene and you're like, Oh, but I oh, but I love that scene. I, I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta celebrate it in my own way. <laughs> I do appreciate you referencing the last Starfighter with the Death Blossom reference. That oh. my friend was especially for you. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me. What do we got here? A man called Cisco. <laughs> yes. So aside from Cassidy Yates, she wasn't the only person to notice Cisco's new look. And for those of us who are of a certain age and a certain generation, I think that we were wondering when Avery Brooks and Benjamin Cisco was going to adopt probably his most signature look from the 1980s and especially the 1980s classic series Spencer for Hire and then the spin-off A Man Called Hawk yeah. which is his signature bald head goatee because there are probably very few looks that are as intimidating <laughs> just <laughs> at first glance as that yeah he he looks like a million bucks and i i do wonder if that was a decision early on to say well we can't have avery look exactly like he did in that series but then as ds9 went along and got its own following they're like yeah he looks cool yeah. <laughs> and looks... with the, with a captain pip the extra captain pip yeah. uh, comes privileges yeah right there you yeah. go there you he go he gets his uh he gets his subscription to the uh, shave club for men yes Yes. You know, and gets his new look. I, I love it. Uh, uh, hey, uh, th- there was a thing in here that was interesting. Uh, I-, I mentioned all the new weapons on Deep Space Nine, but how about that room-wide phaser sweep? It, just me, and I, I'm not a tactical guy. Shouldn't they just do that all the time? Like, you have, uh, oh, like, Klingons and other people, you know, marching down a hallway coming to get you, and they're like, oh, my phaser will just sweep the whole room. Well, I mean, we were... We were referencing that with the the previous episode, the season finale for season three, and they were they were implementing that yeah. at the beginning of the series. Yeah, and I was just thinking, they can put a replicator in every room. Mm-hmm. They can put all these different appliances in every room, comm systems, and things of that nature. Why not put some type of hidden, automatic, automated phaser sweeping module in the room? I mean, this is wartime now. They are under the the threat of the Dominion. 
Right. And it seems just a little bit more. It's kind of like, okay, let's put it this way. If you tamper with an actual automated phaser sweeping module, mm-hmm. it's kind of like being on an airplane and saying, like, please, you know, if you go to the bathroom, don't tamper with the smoke detectors because we know that you are not supposed to be there smoking inside the bathroom. Right. Right. So if anyone tampers with that module, you know that they're up to no good. They're not supposed to touch that, which means, i.e., possible changeling. Yeah, 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 precisely. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a good point. Or, or wait, here, here's another thought. Uh, force fields. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there are force fields in some of those long expanses of corridor. So with yeah, they they can block out certain bulkhead areas and and trap changelings there. It's I know that it's done for dramatic effect, of and done with great of with great execution. But yeah, <laughs> I think I think the chief is pretty savvy. I think he knows what to do. He, he does. He does. Yeah. Um, hey, you know it, it's a mission log tradition. I have to point out the food whenever we see it on screen. Uh, so let's let's uh, stop just for a moment and look at what's on the Cisco table uh, when he's trying to woo Cassidy a little bit. I uh, got some wine. Good call. You got a green salad. You got some canapes of some sort. Uh, if it were me, I might be doing like a little, uh, like a blue cheese salad on some endive. I don't know. Might have been that. Might have been something else. I don't know. And then uh, something orange in a bowl. That's as far as I got. It, it was... So you're saying that um, he's not like serving up Gino's pizza rolls? Or... He's not doing that, but he's also not going to the extent of doing like an etouffee or, or something that you would expect uh, Benjamin Sisko to do. It's just like this big bowl, and, and what is it, is it orange sherbet? Is it, is it uh, jello? We don't know. He, he, I don't think he got too creative there. So. It is orange. It was just orange. What are just we having orange. tonight? Orange. Orange. Something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in Quarks, our other big food reference here, you got the sand peas, and they're doing that whole bit where, uh, you know, Miles is putting it on uh, on his wrist, and then he pops it into his mouth. But then uh, Dr. Bashir asks for yamak sauce. Now, when you have a bowl of dried peas and yamak sauce, do you need a spoon, or is it still the finger food at that point? See, when you see the chief do that, you know that he spent some time in some Irish pubs or pubs of that nature. Oh, yeah. Because that, oh, that's yeah. a bar trick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Right>? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell when I've tried it because there's just a floor full of uh, peas uh, all over the floor behind me uh, if I ever tried Which that. means you're a far more civilized person <laughs> like Bashir because Bashir, obviously, he's, he's a, a cultured, educated man. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I, there's something that I wanted to point out here. I, I always, you know, when there's a scene in a movie or a TV show and they have people like cutting their hands to show allegiance or proving who they are or looking tough or whatever, I, I always want to see the next scene after that. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it, it's, I, I picture them going back to ops and then uh, uh, somebody is like, hey, Kira, within earshot of Cisco, like, hey, Kira, can you hand me that thing over there? Well, I could, but my hand is sliced open because I had to do this thing, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. 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 I always found that strange. And I know that that entire dynamic was kind of borrowed from the thing. Yes. You know, John Carpenter's the thing where they're yep. doing the blood test and you're just waiting for somebody to stick a hot wire or maybe a hot phaser tip or a heart to talk, you know, a yeah. hot to talk tip into it and blood screaming out like a hurt changeling happened. Mm-hmm. But it, it's the one thing that I always thought was funny was, so they're all hanging out talking about these strategies and why talks there and they're 
no one wraps their hands. There's no dermal regenerator. Uh, Everyone's just kind of bleeding on the table. Yeah. <laughs> and why do they have to cut so darn deeply? I know. It's long and it's deep. And there, it's yeah. not just like, here, a little puncture. It's not, not like uh, doing an insulin test, like a, a prick on the end of your finger. It's like, no, we're going to slice open your hand. And again, if I were Kira, I would just I would remind Cisco of that every time. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't work for you right now. I'm bleeding. <laughs> and also, there's the one funny thing that I saw was when Cisco did his his cut, he just kind of gently wipes off the edge of the blade, and he's like, "Here, Kira, now cut yourself." I'm like, "That's not that's not sanitary. <laughs> no, no. That is not disinfected. Don't, don't." Exactly. So, and, and you don't even know what's on the blade. It was Martok's knife. Exactly. He he probably killed a targ with it and barbecued it before he got there. So just saying. Yeah. It's just a little. It's a little unsanitary for me. Not good. Not good. Hey, uh, Drax warns Odo not to take off his Bajoran uniform. Uh, by the way, Drax, he literally can't. Like it, it, it's part of him. He that that uniform is him. It is just made up of more Odo stuff. When you reference that, and when I'm thinking about the scene where where Odo and Garrick are having breakfast, mm-hmm. which is a great scene. And then Odo says that it's not coffee, it's me <laughs> taking the form of coffee and then refilling the coffee after the coffee has been drank to <sighs> simulate the... Is that changeling cannibalism in a way? <laughs> it's it, it's close. It is awfully... It, it's weird. Like, it, it's a cute idea like Odo mm. was trying to fit in by doing this thing but it's it's a little weird the dune still suits came to mind because he's literally kind of like recycling himself yeah you know in perpetuity when yeah. he does that yeah you know, yeah a little strange yeah. but an interesting idea yes i agree um now uh garrick after being beat up i just i'm sorry to giggle there but i i love this line i got off several cutting remarks which no doubt did serious damage to their egos i i feel you garrick because this was just me justifying losing every physical altercation i've ever been in (laughs) i mean but i'm sure you got off several cutting remarks that will haunt them for the rest of yes yes i made fun of their clothes and uh and their lineage and uh yeah it, it, it was it was great um, let's see. And I love War for ordering prune juice, and I love his dart throw. It's just perfect little character ways to to bring back uh, Worf. And of course, I mentioned Skeletor. Big welcome back to Skeletor. Uh, thrilled to see him whenever. Well, I'm. You know, you mentioned that uh, James Earl Jones didn't get a, a credit for his voice until uh, later on in, in Star Wars credits, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that they actually contracted Frank Langella to reprise his role as Skeletor yeah. from Masters of the Universe for this episode. I, yeah. Yeah. It, it tickled me to no end to see that. I was waiting for him to, to turn gold and to start striking Worf down with his golden <laughs> ram's head staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the way to do it. I mean, uh, Star Trek goes for the best people, and uh, maybe this is a scene that got cut out. Uh, that, that was the next part of that scene in the hollow suite. I'd pay for that cut footage yeah. in a heartbeat. I'd pay with one stick of gold press latinum. <laughs> hey, let me ask you something. Now, I've watched a lot of Worf over the years, um, and maybe I'm just blocking this, but why were his eyebrows freaking me out this whole episode? Am I, am I, like, is that how he has always looked, and I just never paid attention to it, but I'm just watching this episode very intently about Worf? Some, they, they just looked gigantic, and they, like they were about to walk off his face. 
you know, Worf is usually seen with kind of like his Dorothy Hamill bob. Mm, yeah, yeah. And when he pulls his hair back, it accentuates everything to the front, to the to his ridged forehead and to his applications. Yeah. So, I mean, I could make a joke about this, but I actually think that's true. Okay. And <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Um, oh, there, there's that scene where uh, Worf and O'Brien are sitting in Quarks, and uh, the chief says, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Worf says, Chief, do you remember that time we rescued uh, Captain Picard from the Borg? And, and I'm just like, uh, what is O'Brien supposed to say to that? Like, oh, geez, yeah. Um, rings a bell? Uh, remind me again? Like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, he remembers. It was only one of the most terrifying, important things that ever happened on the Enterprise D. Uh, that was funny. That, that reminds me of that scene with Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. He's like, you remember? He was talking to Sir Paul McCartney. He goes, yeah. that time were you within the Beatles? That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. Remember that time we, were, we, we, we rescued Picard from the Borg? Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> and remember that time that Jellicoe was our CO? Oh, man, that, that oh. was terrible. Yeah. That was not awesome. <laughs> um, so Worf, uh, still a terrible father, and he admits it. You know, at least he's owning up to it. You know, the Enterprise was his home. Uh, not like he could go start a home somewhere with his son, who is much happier with the Ruzhenkos. So at least that's all out on the table now. Um, I, oh, and, and I love this thing, that this prep that they do on DS9, acknowledging that the Klingons use batlets and like hand-to-hand combat. Because uh, I would be the guy raising my hand like, thank goodness we use phasers. Because <laughs> I'll stand mm-hmm. over here, like way, way over here. I'm even take a high position. I may even just sort of support myself up in the rafters and just aim down. Because uh, this is the best news I've heard all day about a Klingon invasion. Let's see. Hmm. Guns, mm-hmm. arrows, <laughs> right. or swords. Yes. Guns, arrows, or swords. Sounds hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I said this in my in my, my introductory podcast that I was a medieval European sword fighter. Right. And and uh, in studying different weapons, I have to tell you, and I'm going to be completely 100% honest, and I know that the Klingon fans out there are going to send me all the mail, and that's okay. <laughs> but the actual batleth itself is not a very good melee weapon at all. All. Oh, yeah, huh. and you can you can even see it in the choreography where every time that they do some type of block and swipe strike, they have to switch grips and they have to try and gain leverage and try and use the curved hook end of it to try and do some damage. Oh no 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 yeah no, 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 so no, no, not no. good. So don't like if I'm ever in that situation, don't opt for a batleth as my go-to weapon. Well, I mean, think about it this way: the only two times that we ever saw any weapon in this episode draw blood it was when kira cut herself with a dagger mm. and then when he got she got stabbed with somebody else's dagger the klingon dagger is the weapon of choice when it comes to the situation you're right you're very right, right. yeah good point um it, there was a certain point in the show like because i i was not expecting it i had not seen this episode before if i had it was a very long time ago uh when they unleash all the weapons the death blossom on uh ds9 and i was like okay did this suddenly turn into anime like there aren't a few ships. There are hundreds, and we don't have a few torpedoes. We have all of them. And you thought our launchers were cool before. Now they pop out from the side, and they spin around. And then there's hand-to-hand combat. I mean, there was just so much happening. 
I, it, it was really just every time they thought they had enough, they were like, no, we're going to do more. <laughs> and it, it was, I thought that was super cool. I mean, I just uh, thought that the whole thing was like, okay, let's go and just open up all the gun ports and then fire. Yes, yes. Which, I, you know, given a choice, I wouldn't necessarily want to be on a station. I would feel maybe uh, more protected and more nimble on a ship. But then when you say, oh, this station has 5,000 quantum torpedoes, I, uh, okay, I guess we're pretty safe here. <laughs> You'd think so. Yeah. And, but where do you store all that? I'm like, you know, there wasn't anything like, okay, let's let's uh, evacuate all of these different storage bays because we have 5,000 quantum torpedoes <laughs> that we got to stick somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like, you know, all the all of Quark's cases of Kanar or Yamak sauce that, you know, he has right. hoarded in his storeroom. Well, it's like, uh, everybody pick a roommate uh, <laughs> because yeah. we're... Everybody double up. Yeah, yeah. But one of the last things, John, that I wanted to mention is that there's a scene that I really loved, and because I love Garrick, I, I've made it known on like every forum that I'm on that I love Garrick. He's my favorite character of Deep Space Nine by far, by a country mile. And I love how he was maneuvered into measuring Cisco's new suit because they knew that he was going to get that information to whoever he needed to get that information to. I just thought that was be. I thought it was really, really neat that. They don't have to say it. He just automatically is so trained with his background in the Obsidian Order that he knew that they would drop that line. And something that he said earlier on, he's like, you'd be am- you'd be amazed at what you would pick up when you're altering. Yes. Seats. Yes. That that was a solid bit. I, I, I love that. And I love that we're kind of dropping just playing around with Garrick being a spy. It's like, no, 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 guy's a spy. He was in Obsidian Order. He's connected. And mm-hmm. now we're going to use this even more so to our advantage. We're just going to work with it. And it'll just... It's like the... Yeah. It's the ultimate back-channeling, you know? Yes. Yeah. Love it. For anyone who is considering a test to see if they are human before the next segment... Please use a Band-Aid. I do not need blood in my logic board. We'll continue our discussion of The Way of the Warrior in just a moment, but we wanted to tell you about Patreon. If you'd like to support this show directly, join us at patreon.com slash mission log. Now, it's kind of a fun thing, Norman. Uh, when we started talking about Patreon online and we, we introduced you to our audience, uh, we actually got some email back saying, hey, you guys almost never talk about Patreon on the show. And that is true. We, we kind of downplay it and we obviously leave room for uh, sponsors. But something that they pointed out that a lot of our audience doesn't know is that we put up the uncensored behind-the-scenes videos of the recording sessions for Mission Log there. Um, and that's kind of nice because you and I can attest to the fact that they will see our flubs, they will see our mm-hmm. rooms, they will see our banter back and forth, and it's just a, a nice little peek into what it takes to put together an episode of Mission Log. Well, you know, um, your DVD Geek's background and, and the reason why we became friends is because I followed you there. This is kind of something that you would promote on DVD geeks. This is, these are the, the raw unedited cuts, bloopers and warts and all. And that's the kind of stuff that people like to see. They want to see 
my hands moving, you know, or you smiling at me saying, no, 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 no more hands. You know, but things of that nature, because this is where the personalities kind of, uh, they, they start to blossom and you get to see, uh, you get to see me, hey, you know, um, John, I need to stop for five minutes and because your, your recap was so epically awesome. <laughs> Got to take and a break to get ready for them. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing. And it's really worth uh, supporting. So there's a lot of fun stuff over there. There is obviously a lot more to come as well, but you can check us out again. That address is patreon.com slash mission log support the show directly at patreon.com slash mission log. So, Norm, before we get into the full, uh, deep discussion here, there are just a, a couple of little things that I, I feel like I wanted to point out, because uh, I, I know that there, there's really no end to the uh, themes that we could dissect in this show. Uh, but there's a quick thing, and I actually left it out of the recap, and that was Dax and Kira hitting the holodeck, or holosuite, rather, my bad. Still got TNG brain. Um their discussion is less about the reality of the Hollow Suite, which is a conversation that I really like to get into, um, but it's more about just the need for relaxation. And it's a cool character bit to see uh, Kira, who, uh, for good reason, you know, she's uh, a little resistant to the idea of just relaxing and having fun and uh, giving herself over to the fantasy of the Hollow Suite. And Dax who is 700 plus years old and has all these lifetimes of memories to pull from. Uh, she, she, it made me sort of think of shore leave. It's like the more advanced the species, uh, the more deep the need is uh, for play. So um, it's not critical to the episode, but I do like that in a super long episode where a lot of characters get their little moments, we gave some moments to them that weren't just about the battle. Uh, also pointing out that their costumes are real world. Uh, we step out of their bizarre uh, Renaissance fantasy that uh, they're still wearing those outfits. And you have that uh, little comedic bit with uh, Kira pulling that long veil over her head to get out of the hat. So that was a fun little bit. I mean, it also did add to Worf's uh, discomfort in a way because this is Worf. Yeah. Right? You know, he's, he's there. He feels that he needs a purpose, a place. He needs to meet with the high command of Deep Space Nine and all the officers in a very serious way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the first officer and the, the representative of the Bajoran uh, provisional government is there in Renaissance fair outfit. Yes. Yes. And yeah. that was his first impression, and it obviously did not— sit well with him being Worf. Right. But but then they they throughout this they left these little seeds about his uh dare I say relationship, friendship with uh Jadzia Dax, uh because they it's something weird like that happens where, where they're in this weird renaissance thing. I'm here about a very serious mission, but they immediately have this conversation in Klingon uh, mm -hmm. which he's sort of, oh, wait, I, I keep underestimating this woman. This is somebody that I should talk to. So I, I love that. Um, another little thing that I want to point out, uh, the Klingons say to, I believe it's K-Bok, says to Cisco uh, while the Klingons are attacking Cassidy's ship, how can we have evidence until we conduct our tests? And um, th there is a lot of action or inaction taken in this episode with incomplete information. And we see the Klingons just ready to justify their desire for an attack by just assuming the evidence will be there to them. To them, it just feels right. So they have to do it. 
you know. Uh, and there's a good scene in the wardroom with the DS9 staff just asking themselves what is likely given what they know. And Cisco is aware uh, that there's a risk that the Klingons are right about the Dominion. Still, it's a worse thing for him to sit by and wait while people are attacked. And I'm not making a huge point here because it's probably a point that we could discuss in other episodes. Uh, but there's a contrast being drawn between what to do, how to react, when the whole picture isn't exactly clear. So we can either react with fear and suspicion or with compassion and an assumption to do what's right. Uh, and I like that throughout this episode, there are many moments where you're faced with that, oh, I don't exactly know what's going on, but I have to decide what to do anyway. Uh, it was nice to see those play out uh, in here. You know, I mentioned before that uh, in Star Trek, all the captains are faced with these dilemmas, these very polarizing issues where they have to choose between two very, very terrible choices in a way. Right. You either do this or you do this. And that's where you really kind of see the quality of a captain shine because they have to make a decision. They, by, by inaction, they're going to cause something else or even something possibly worse to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I love that we got a few tastes of that here. And, and it wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't just something that I feel like DS9 sometimes falls back on, which is the Federation's doing something completely wrong you know, unquestionably wrong, and therefore Cisco is going to do this thing anyway. Like, that that's too easy, mm -hmm. that's too obvious. Instead, there are these really high, really complex stakes going on. Like, there are whole alliances falling apart, um, and, and through nobody's particular fault on Starfleet's end or on the Federation end, we're just in this terrible situation where we're trying to stop the worst possible case scenario coming afterward. Mm -hmm. um, hey, let me ask you, since I know you're a fan of Garrick, as am I, and you pointed out the uh, Garrick scene of him pretending to be a tailor while getting the mm -hmm. inside information, uh, what did you think of that scene with Garrick and Quark talking about root beer? I thought it was a nice little quiet character moment between these two, basically these two characters who don't really interact all that much. But the thing is, is that they're thrown into this situation where Neither of them are very comfortable waiting it out. They're both men of action in their own ways. Quark is always actionable while scheming, and Garrick is always actionable by scheming. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But, but they have this, this one probably uh, common opinion about Starfleet, and then I like the root beer analogy because root beer is— it kind of does win you over. Some people are like, oh, it's a very, very polarizing flavor. But at the same time, there's something about it that just kind of wins me over. Yeah. And now I want a little bit of ice cream in this right. too. <laughs> See, it's another one of those things that I felt was very kind of nice and nuanced, where it wasn't mm -hmm. DS9 thumbing its nose at the rest of Star Trek or, or the sort of grand Star Trek ideals. It was saying, hey— these are a couple of aliens could not be more different from each other and from others within the Federation. Uh, but the reality is they are, say, Federation adjacent now. They are surrounded by Federation people, uh, 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 representatives and Starfleet representatives and officers. So how do they react to it? Are they uh, resentful? 
And is there in them not just something that is only resentful, but is also maybe a little bit appreciative, that, that's saying like, oh, this is different, I don't like change, but I'm kind of glad that the Federation is there on my side. Well, I mean, if you're going to have the biggest, best guns of the galaxy on your side, you kind of want to cozy up to them a little yeah. bit. But at the same time, though, you can't help, because it is Quark and Garrick, that they're you have to believe that they're being slightly opportunistic also yes. about where they can slide their agendas into play during this whole, uh, this, this uh, eruption of chaos, if you will. Right, right. So uh, let's talk, I think we're going to spend, well, heavy uh, dialogue here on the Klingons because this is a Klingon-heavy episode. But let's, uh, let's start mm -hmm. with Quark, uh, I'm sorry, Worf. Let's start with Worf here uh, because he's our focal point you know, at least as a singular representative of a Klingon conflict. But it's really about Worf finding his place, you know, figuring out where he belongs. Um, I, 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 I'm kind of getting ahead of myself when it comes to the notes here, but I, I will say that I appreciated the idea that we got a little more uh, depth out of Worf here. And he's really having to sit with these things that have happened since we've seen him in Next Gen. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I think that the one thing that was probably the most difficult thing to bring Worf in is to how do you how do you insert a character that was usually a very support player mm -hmm. in the next generation and even in generations because generations obviously came before this. And then Worf references that the Enterprise has been destroyed. He has no place. He has no home. He has no, you know, to crew uh, his former crew to rely on or maybe even call or talk to. He is. He is a man without, or a Klingon without. So what is he doing here? What's his purpose? What's his motivation? Yeah. And I wrote this note. It's like, is, there, is he going through some type of midlife crisis? Do Klingons <laughs> have midlife crises? You know, because most of the time in this episode, he's pondering who I am, what do I do, where do I go, how do I fit in here? Aside from the fact that I'm ordered to be here, I have a duty to start to perform and I have to do it to the best of my ability. That being said, take all of that away. Who is he? He's not a father. Mm -hmm. He's not a Klingon. Uh, he's barely a Starfleet officer because he doesn't have a ship or duty to report to. And he doesn't really have any friends. Yeah. So exactly what is he about? And I think that there were some well scripted moments for him to lament and kind of reflect on his situation. But at the same time, though, I felt that they thrust so much of Worf into this episode to make sure that this is the Worf episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Um, do you think, uh, I mean, is there anything to be said about the Federation's response, uh, good or bad here, or their lack of response, good or bad here? When all of the Klingons decloaked at the end and when Deep Space Nine unveiled its arsenal, which was amazing, mm. the one thing that I didn't kind of sit well with me is that you have this entire fleet that's moving through space from bases across the universe, across the Alpha Quadrant, from Kronos, from all of these different areas. You would think, well, I know that the Obsidian Order was pretty much leveled, and so was the Tal Shiar, you know, uh, in the Dias cast. But you would think that Starfleet Intelligence would be like, you remember all those ships that were at that base? Where'd they go? <laughs> or yeah. 
has anyone heard from any of the high command or Chancellor Gowron in I don't know how long? You know, I have to believe that there are diplomats or ambassadors or even spies that have noticed that, you know what, something isn't right. No one's returning my phone calls. Yeah. So what happened? Where are they? I believe that a fleet of that size had to have been noticed somehow, and all of a sudden, whoosh, they just kind of appear out of nowhere. Obviously, they have cloaking devices, and obviously, we know that some of them were there. But that fleet was massive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you would think that it would be noticed. Yeah. But uh, is the Federation doing the right thing by saying, hey, we can't side with anybody here? We, we, I mean, you have to think that at some point somebody is saying, all right, get some ships over to Deep Space Nine. Let's see what's happening. But they are dragging their feet on it. Or is it just purely... Uh, out of the reason that they state, which is we have to protect the peace, we can't take sides here, um, we we can't just start going to war with the Klingons. Well, it's very well possible that on the flip side of what I said, and I'll be my own devil's advocate, it's very well possible that Starfleet knew exactly what the Klingons were doing, and they're like, you know what? That's the fringe of, mm. of our space. Oh, the Cardassians, yeah. they're, not really, uh, they're not really our allies per se, the Bajorans, we'll see what we can do for them in terms of support, but let's protect our space. You know, I think everyone's, when the Klingons were on the move, maybe the Starfleet was like, you know what, it's time to kind of protect home base and to rally our forces and resources around where we can defend, yeah. as opposed to stretching ourselves out. They, much like anything else, you can't be the police force for everybody and not protect home plate. Right. And maybe that's what maybe that's what the Federation stance was at this time. Yeah, could be. So, John, one of the things that we have alluded to in this episode is the fact that there are obviously very heavy Klingon influences that have been laced throughout this episode. When it comes to Worf, when it comes to the Klingons, I guess occupying Deep Space Nine, and the one thing that gets bandied around a bit in this episode and not much to my comfort level, mm. is this whole element of Klingon honor. Klingon honor, what is that? What does that mean? So you're saying the Klingons love honor like a, like a Vulcan loves logic. In the dialogue, yeah, yeah. but there are, there are great examples of honor being used in the way that I think honor is used, and obviously in the Terran way that we think honor is being referenced. And this is a, a, a point of, of dignity and pride and nobility. But then one thing that really just didn't sit well with me was when the Defiant was out and they were headed towards Goldacott's ship to save him and the government. And they run across some debris. And then, well, I'll just read this line of dialogue mm -hmm. here. Worf says, it appears to be the wreckage of a number of Cardassian vessels. I'll do it. That was good. That was very good. Yeah. I, on screen. <laughs> and then Bashir says, are there any signs of survivors? Mm. And Dex says, I suppose it's possible, but there's no way to know without decloaking and using our primary sensor array. Sir, I strongly recommend against that. It is likely there are cloaked Klingon warships in the vicinity lying in wait. Bashir says, well, that doesn't sound very honorable to me. And then Worf's, and this is my sticking yeah. point. In war, there is nothing more honorable than victory. And I was like, at what cost? Yeah. So, well, let me ask you this, because I, I like where you're going with this a lot. Um, is this 
Worf saying this because it is Worf's training and background and upbringing, even though he's brought up by the Rajinkos, he, he has adopted this Klingon, this sort of fascination and, and immerse himself in Klingon culture. Is this Worf saying this because he believes it, or is he just saying it because he's indicating to the others this is what's important to them as opposed to this is how I feel? That is a really great point, and that's, I think, where my, I guess, my issue is with that particular line of dialogue because it can cut both ways. Yeah. Because Worf is struggling with his Klingon heritage so much and trying to re-identify himself with his people, and this is after he's been scorned several times, and again, he's trying to struggle with his own place in the universe, whether he's Starfleet, whether he, is he Klingon, what does he do, who is he, you know, what's my purpose? And all of a sudden, he spouts this particular line of dialogue. Sure, he can reflect the fact that this is what Klingons do. But it still doesn't justify that action. It still doesn't justify the fact that in Klingon culture, they say honor means one thing, you know, bring honor to your house, bring honor to your people, bring honor to your name. But then when he says this is that that's how you bring honor to your name. That's how you bring honor to your people by any means necessary, by essentially using every single tactic in the book for victory, Mm. whether it's guile, whether it's. Uh, unmerciful acts, whether it is something that is entirely distasteful to the human or Terran morality, what does that mean? And, and maybe I'm looking at it solely from being a human person as opposed to, no, Klingons are like, honor is this and that alone. But I find it very inconsistent when it comes to how Klingons, well, at least the Klingons that I know that touted honor like Kor and Koloth and Kang. Yeah. Those Klingons, yeah. and those were the Klingons that I understood that upheld a certain sense of honor. So for me, it's very unresolved as to what that means and how it defines Klingon culture moving forward, at least for me. Well, I mean, I think you're pointing out sort of the the problem here with the Klingons overall, which is, and I, I was half joking when I said it's, you know, the, the like the Vulcans using logic. It's just like, here's a word that we keep using because traditionally we have used this word over and over to justify everything that we do. But the problem is we've actually lost any understanding of the meaning of that word. So just as a Vulcan can logic him or herself into any position, because we see Spock do it all the time, we see Sarek do it all the time, uh, a Klingon can honor him or herself into any position or taking up any bad idea and just slap the name honor on it. Like, it's funny to me now that uh, Worf goes into Quark's and he orders prune juice, and that's a, a callback to TNG, like, season two or something, where Guinan— I think it was yesterday's Enterprise when Guinan— Oh, that's right. It was in juice. yesterday's Enterprise, of course. Um, and it— you know, the joke is, okay, prune juice is sort of this nasty drink, <laughs> you know, uh, but you can say, you, you can manipulate a Klingon and say, oh, but this is a warrior's drink. There's honor in drinking this drink. You know, literally just giving the label to something, even if it's terrible, you can fool a Klingon into thinking like, oh, okay, well, well, this is good now. This is the, the thing that I should do now. And in the case of the prune juice, it's the thing that I should drink. Or 
in the case of carrying out some horrible uh, uh, preemptive political action uh, uh, which will instigate a war, all we have to do is convince ourselves that it's honorable because we use the word honor, ding, 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 and now we get to Mm -hmm. justify our terrible actions. And what's happened along the ways, and maybe it's been thousands of years of Klingon history that's done it, what's happened along the way is they've either stopped understanding or they've decided to stop understanding uh, what the actual meaning of honor is. Now, this may, as you're pointing out here, this may be coming from a very Terran-centric point of view. Um, I might be saying that because my idea of honor is tied up with, oh, you know, the things that I've watched on Star Trek, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. usually led by the heroes who are usually humans, who are usually from Earth, who are usually in nice starships. Um, But the Klingons are acting dishonorably over and over and over again. And to Worf's credit, he calls them out. Um, He calls out to Martok's face what they've done, uh, particularly like, uh, uh, you know, seizing Cassidy's ship and, uh, and, and, you know, beating up Garrick. And there's no honor. You're just being thugs. You're being bullies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But all it takes is for Martok to tell himself or to report it back to Gowron and Gowron tell him, oh, yeah, well, we're doing it for the glory of the Empire. Uh, Everything we do is full of honor because we say it's full of honor. Right. And that makes it okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that there are just occasions, uh, not to belabor this point too much, because I think that that we've bandied this around uh, quite a bit, but just the the examples that they have here in this episode with Klingons hitting soft targets, with them striking at the Cardassians where they're, they're in disarray, with hitting a completely like isolated station without any Federation backup, does that to you feel like an like this warrior race that's built its empire upon these great battles and these great songs and all of this pomp and circumstance that tout how great of a warrior race they are to the point where like, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do and throw at us. We are the greatest warriors of this known galaxy and we will fight you with honor in our eyes and a clear conscience in our hearts and defeat you as opposed to, Let's wait for all of these soft targets to appear out of nowhere, and then we will decloak and destroy you. Yeah. That makes absolutely zero sense to me. Okay, you said the magic word, which is decloak. <laughs> because now I'm going to throw <laughs> this honor conversation uh, uh, back on you from a different point of view. I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you about the honor of our heroes here from Starfleet who are piloting the Defiant. So mm-hmm. they're using a cloaking device in the Alpha Quadrant. And this is something that drives me crazy because we have a rule for good reason about not using them at all, first of all. You know, that, that, that's one thing. So even War says, like, oh, this is a little weird. I've never been in a Starfleet ship that has a cloaking device. Um, although he was on the Pegasus, so he knows about that. So regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we need to bend the rule for the Defiant a little. Uh, because this is a special case with the Gamma Quadrant. We don't know what we're up against. So we're going to say, yeah, we're going to work with the Romulans, uh, who are sort of our enemies, though sometimes we can work together if we hold our, our noses around each other. Uh, we'll take their cloaking device so we can go do stuff in the Gamma Quadrant. That is a special case, clear on the other side, literally on the other side of the galaxy. But now we need to bend the rule again 
because it mm-hmm. is a special, special case. And, and darn it, this time our mission is really tough. Um, Worf, as you're pointing out here, mentions that there are probably cloaked Klingon ships waiting nearby. And Bashir says, well, that doesn't sound very honorable to me, as you point out. And I want to grab him and say, dude, you are in a cloaked ship. Now, mm-hmm. I know your mission is different. Your mission is one of rescue. But come on. <laughs> you are doing the same thing. You are sneaking around, which is, and that's the way that Gene Roddenberry put it, is you're sneaking around, which is why our good guys, our quote-unquote good guys, don't use a cloaking device. Now, I've had this conversation with some Mission Log listeners over email and elsewhere uh, before getting into this episode. And uh, the point that I was making uh, was that even little things like this it's so easy to just keep justifying why we break the rules just this once. It's like mm-hmm. we can say, well, well, we have these principles. We, we have, and I'm going to use uh, your word here, we're going to use honor again because we're honorable people doing honorable things. And we can justify our actions. But, oh, but, but we, we need to twist that rule just this time, just because it's much more convenient to do it this way. I don't think that's a very Star Trek message. And and actually, I think it's an awful human message as well. I know that they're the heroes. I know that they have to succeed in their mission. I'd like to think that there is another way, because the thing I keep asking myself is, when do we get to a bridge too far? How many Mm -hmm. principles do we compromise? How many dishonorable things do we do in the name of honor to the point that those words just have no meaning anymore at all? You know, I actually like that you brought this up because in this case, the same person literally kind of uh, colored the scene in these two different ways. Bashir said to Cisco before they went in, he's like, you know what? You know, you're not supposed to use the cloaking device in Federation space. You know that, right? And Cisco's like, well, just this once because, you know, it's either that or we have to fight through every single Klingon ship between here and Cardassia. And Bashir's like, just wanted to let you know. Just to be on the record, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then later, when he talked about, you know, Warf, that's not a very honorable thing to do. Much to your point, you're absolutely right. <laughs> however, however, uh-huh. I, do, I do think that it's not because of the actions of the Defiant crew and Captain Sisko that put them in that situation to choose that, to, to choose to bend the rules and to stretch that code of honor. It's fe- the Federation's inaction to back them up, to give them support so that they wouldn't have to do it. If there were an escort fleet of ships to get the Cardassians from, uh, f- from the Klingon assault, then maybe they would have been able to straight up fight the Klingons in a, in a you know, uh, mano y mano, like even strength. But the Defiance, like, it, it's kind of like that thing that we're talking about, the, the lesser of two choices, you know, the lesser of the two evil choices. It's either we let, you know, innocent people die or we swallow our honor a little bit and bend the rules, but we're justified because we didn't let innocent people die. I, I, uh, ooh. See, I, I, I want to be Spock here, and I want to say there are always possibilities. Because I worry that when we swallow the honor a little bit, each successive time, it gets easier to swallow a little bit more. And oh, sure. I... I, I want to think that even if the Federation or Starfleet in particular is not holding up its end of the bargain here, 
that the people who we are seeing are heroic are the ones who do hold up to that, who who do stand by that principle. So um, mm. I, I get it, man. I get it that it's a tough situation. It's the worst situation they can be in. Um, but I also want to believe that there are possibilities. I agree. It's, I mean, we're obviously talking about the real-time aspect of if they had every opportunity to look at this at every angle, which is something that we both support, you know, as Star Trek fans, but in the, in the application and the advent of time and narrative and drama, (laughs) you know, it, it obviously uh, expedites the story quite a bit, but Uh, but, you're right. See that that's what my Star Trek writers should be doing. My Star Trek writers Mm. should be looking at every Avenue and every possibility so they can say, guess what? We can stick to our principles and we can be the good guys and we can do the right thing. Right. That's yeah. fair to say. True enough. Yep. I will, I will agree on that. Honor. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. All right, Norman, in a very dense episode, we've made it. We've succeeded. We've gotten to the last segment where you get to examine the way of the warrior and see if it all holds up. Hey, let me ask you really quickly about the title here. Uh, mm-hmm. Rod, in particular, uh, Rod Roddenberry, executive producer of Mission Log, uh, he likes for us to address the titles every now and then. I think Way of the Warrior, I, I think it addresses, uh, well, pretty much everybody in the episode. It, it addresses clearly Worf. Who is he? What is the way he will choose? I think we're also talking about Gowron and Martok here. Uh, what What is the way, what is the honorable, or as we're pointing out, the dishonorable way that they are approaching things? And even a guy like Cisco, a guy like Cisco who's trying to avoid war, but has to act like a warrior sometimes. Uh, so uh, anything that I'm missing there in the nuance of the title? You mean you didn't like... The original title, How Worf Got His Groove Back? I, well, that's actually my favorite. And uh, I hope the novelization is actually called How Worf Got His Groove Back. And I hope that I was you a little write upset it. that they scrapped that off. But, oh, hey, okay. you, know, you can't have everything. <laughs> well, here in the last segment of the show, we like to ask ourselves a few things. Uh, number one, does the episode hold up just as a, as a production? You can justify that any way you want as a story, uh, as just something as a piece of entertainment for you. Uh, and then we'll get into the morals, meanings, and messages. What does it all mean at the end of the day? Uh, But does the episode, Norman, does it hold up? Does the way of the warrior work for you? Well, coming at it from strictly looking at this episode as a newer fan, because I don't really have all of the the baggage, if you will, or all these preconceived ideas of a fan that has seen this episode multiple times, and coming off of the adversary and the cliffhanger and the wonderfully just... uh, the, the, the buildup of that wonderful ending of, of the adversary in season three, I wanted that to continue and I wanted that narrative to continue. And they kind of did at the beginning with the, the training sequence with the phaser sweeps and trying to hunt down Odo. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it became something totally different for me. And I ended up watching this episode. I don't think for the reasons I wanted to see season four continue. Mm-hmm. I felt that it, it very well felt like they were trying to fast track Worf's story, because he wasn't an initial member of this cast from seasons one through three, there wasn't a lot of backstory development of who this character was. Now, we know who he is from from the, the next generation. We know where he was coming from in the timeline from generations, 
But because you saw Michael Dorn's name in the credits, you automatically assume that when he hits the promenade, when he walks out of, you know, walks through the, uh, the, I guess the shuttle bay mm-hmm. or the dry dock, mm-hmm. it's all of a sudden his story and all of a sudden the Klingon story. And I do miss the, just the great narrative and uh, the development of where the Bajorans were, where the Cardassians were, uh, where the Jem'Hadar were, where the Dominion were, and the founders up until this point. Hmm. And I felt that it was unfairly truncated, if you will. And I'm sure that we'll get back to it because there are still four seasons left. (laughs) But the writers obviously wanted to make a point and a statement that Worf is here to stay. So are the Klingons. And now there's this added element in there that wasn't previously massaged into the story before. Yeah. So from that aspect, I felt that it was a little heavy handed for me. Okay. I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't disagree with your assessment, but I think I enjoyed going down that road a little more than you did. Uh, only because, like, when we get Worf and when we dig a little more into the Klingon culture, and, and I'm somebody who threw out talking about DS9 and even TOS, I'm really I'm not the biggest Klingon fan. It's like, I, I think they're overused. Um, I, I think it's a lot of one-note stuff. Um, and there's a serious side to that uh, about uh, abusing and misusing the idea of honor. But there's also a very comedic side to that, which is, like I said, you can get a Klingon to do anything by putting the word honor on it. And, you know, that's that that's sort of the, the end point of all Klingon stories. Um but seeing Worf there, getting into a Klingon story, uh, I kind of enjoyed the diversion. So I'm fascinated by the Cardassian story and history. I am interested in what happens to Bajor. I am interested in what happens with the founders and the Dominion. Uh, but this was, I guess, sort of like the intended breath of fresh air uh, that it was to, to just sort of shake things up a bit on DS9 by going down this route. Um, now, I will say that I might feel lost if I were just joining DS9, uh, but this series is sort of designed that way. So you have all these other character things that we sort of put on hold. So if I were just coming to it now, I would think, well, well wait a minute, who am I actually supposed to care about? Okay, I'm just supposed to care about Worf, to your point. Um they do dig a little deeply. They do add some more complexity to other characters and and some of the other story arcs, but but not all. Um, but I, I ended up being more interested in Worf here than I really ever have been. I have to say, maybe maybe the time away from Worf for a little bit and then seeing him in conflict made me more interested in him. Uh, the political intrigue was interesting to me. Um, but at a certain point, I want Star Trek to be, you know, about the three M's that we talk about on Mission Log, morals, meanings, messages, not just commenting on its own internal politics. Like the the more you build these very complex worlds and complex political structures within Star Trek, it becomes a lot of in-universe discussion and not just like, oh, okay, here's how it's relevant to us. Here's how it makes sense as an analog to the real world. Now that said, this episode is epic. 
um, everything about it, yeah, the running time, <laughs> uh, the effects, the high stakes, it's very well produced and it's tight. It, it moves along at a pretty good clip. Robert O'Reilly chews scenery in the most wonderful way. And, and even at the very end, his last line, we do not forgive or forget. He's just, uh, he's so good in that moment. Uh, and in many moments, uh, mm -hmm. pretty much any time he's on screen. And those eyes, you know, of course. Um, you can sort of tell here as a production that they were let down by the lackluster ending of season three and just decided to throw everything at the wall on this one. And I think mostly it succeeds for me. So I, I do say that it holds up. It's just sort of thrilling, even if you take every stuff out of, uh, uh, you know, the, the problems we might have with uh, how does this fit in? Is it stunt casting, whatever? If you can leave that at the table, then uh, it is just sort of a thrilling big episode of Star Trek. Um, before we get to morals and meanings messages, let me ask you something real quick. Mm-hmm. Do you have a problem with the idea that now the Klingons have been redefined again? Because, you know, it was a big deal in TNG that Gene was telling everybody on staff, hey, it's been 80 years. The Kittimer Peace Accords worked. <laughs> we're, we're friends with the Klingons, uh, although by 1986, they had not yet developed that specifically as a plot line. But go mm. with me. We're talking about the overall Star Trek timeline here. Um, and it was important to have a Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise to say, we can make friends out of our enemies. By doing this story, are we just undoing that and saying, oh, well, they're still warriors. They, they just, they fight because they have to fight. It probably has something to do with my lack of knowledge of the overall Klingon culture because the Klingons to me, again, being a TOS fan, there were only a handful of, of references to Klingons and what Klingon culture was about. Not even really in the movies. I mean, probably the most influential Klingon in the movies was Krug and mm -hmm. search for Spock. And he became kind of like the headbutting barbarian Klingon model for years to come. Yeah. So I don't really think that I'm the best authority on really understanding the Klingons at this point. That being said, I do I do appreciate that there was the line of dialogue saying like Worf said that the Klingons were probably they just become complacent. They've become soft. Mm. And for a warrior culture, they need to expand. They need to grow. They need to to keep their teeth sharp and their blades even sharper in a way. So they need to expand. The thing is that this the sheer amount of aggression that they threw into the Alpha Quadrant, and especially against the Cardassians, just seemed misplaced. It didn't seem that there was a, a rational reason for why they are moving forward with such a clip. Because yeah. all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we have no proof that the, that the Cardassians have been infiltrated by the Dominion. But we think we do, and therefore we are right. And yeah. we have the biggest guns, we have the most incredible warriors. We have Gowron's bug eyes, just <laughs> epic scale, right? You know, uh. yeah. But at the same time though, I don't feel that tactically until Worf references Kalis's very wise words, yeah. that the Klingons are actually doing something strategically in order to not just bolster the empire, but to lay the groundwork down for an even stronger culture. 
That being said, maybe this just is how the Klingon Empire is now. They're just reckless, and maybe that's the way they've always been. But again, I don't really, I can't cite Klingon culture and a Klingon history um, yeah. as some can. This is just my observation. Sure. Well, it, it worried me enough to bring it up because I, I, I don't want the message there to be, uh, okay, we, we've known the Klingons for all this time since the original, since TOS, and then TNG gets projected so many decades into the future. And there's this idea that says, oh, look, those people that you thought were your enemy, they're not. But now are we saying, to worst point, you know, they, they what need to keep their knives sharp and their teeth, whatever it was that you just said. They're all sharp. They're, they're all, all sharp. sharp. Yeah, so much yeah. sharpness. Um, mm -hmm. Is it just saying, like, well, some people are just destined to fight, so they're just going to fight no matter what? Um, no, it's, it's very all possible. It's just kind of like the scorpion parable. They just do. That's who they are. Yeah. And they will stab you. When you're swimming across the lake, well, I'll stab thank, you right in the back. Thank goodness we have Worf then. Um, well, talking to me about morals, meanings, messages. Uh, is there a message or a uh, a couple of ideas to ponder here in this episode? Well, and, and looking through it, I really think that there are kind of two messages that I come away with. And the first is that age-old saying that you can't go home anymore. Because, as I mentioned before, Worf feels just unstable. You can feel, and Michael Dorn does a fantastic job of just feeling that there's quicksand underneath his feet the entire episode. Yeah. He just feels that he's not, he doesn't have a place. He doesn't know if he's Starfleet. He doesn't know if he's Klingon. His people have turned their backs on him. He's met with aggression around every corner. And really, the only, the only one person that probably understands him better than most is Jadzia because of Curzon. Because she understands Klingon culture. And then Chief, up to a point, because they serve together on the Enterprise. But aside from that, though, he really is kind of lamenting where he is at right now in his career and in his life. Because, again, he's not a father of any real stature. He's not a Starfleet officer of any real rank or importance at this time. And he's not someone who's welcomed by his own people. So what is he? And mm -hmm. I think that he has to find that for himself. And that leads me into my second point. You can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. And that's where Worf is really coming to terms with at the end. He knows that he's made an enemy of Galron, or at least he's lost his alliance with that house and his influence with the Chancellor. Martok's relationship with him remains to be seen, so he really has to depend on a handful of people that he's probably just relying on the sheer fact that they're Starfleet for the most part mm -hmm. because he understands that if they're Starfleet, that's good enough for me based on their training and their code of honor. And he's like, well, Commander Sisko, he's battle-tested. He has all of these wonderful accomplishments and accolades. He's not Captain Picard, but he is my commanding officer. Therefore, I will step to and toe the line. That being said... He uh, is now in a command situation where he's completely a fish out of water, so that's going to be interesting to see. But he really <laughs> does. He's, he's come to this point at the end where he is a brand new wharf in a way. He's, yeah. he's wearing a new skin. Yeah. And I think Michael Dorn is an actor of high caliber and quality that he'll be able to give us new layers of wharf as opposed to fire that or mm. you know arm those torpedoes or the shields are failing yeah. you know, or something like that who's and, this kid yeah right where's my son that's not my son is that your name alphonse <laughs> right i i think both of those uh your messages definitely hold up i, I think they're absolutely correct and and i i 
gathered some of that out of this as well. I think the idea of you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends, that is something that we see very often in Star Trek, and it's it's nice to see it play out in a positive way when it does. Um, so I agree with those. I would only add to it um, that they do manage to get in a message about sticking together at the end. Cisco is right. The Dominion would rather see the Alpha Quadrant be fractured. And he explains the logic of this to Gowron, who's like, oh, yeah, uh, we are weaker if we fall apart like this. So we need to actually band together to make sure we're protecting each other against the real enemy. True on the micro scale and on the macro scale uh, in this case. And then you mentioned it uh, earlier, uh, the the lines that Kales said, which Worf says to Gowron and then Gowron finishes, destroying an enemy to win a war is no victory, followed by and ending a battle to save an empire is no defeat. Interesting, uh, interesting thoughts to come from the Klingon Empire. Uh, maybe these are ideas that if you think about the, the Klingons having a long list of rules and, and sage-wise words, kind of akin to the Ferengi rules of uh, acquisition, maybe these are two that should get moved to the top of the list <laughs> instead of getting buried somewhere only to be discovered when it's almost too late. So, and it uh, felt very Sun Tzu in that way. Yes, you know, very yes. type of uh, the the great warrior philosopher, you know, of of our history of yeah. human history. And yeah, I felt that that was a kind of a uh, tangentially a, a throwback to his wisdom because that's I believe who Kalos was this kind of warrior monk poet. Yeah, you know who who consolidated the empire through wisdom, not through might necessarily. Well, like another great philosopher said, uh, sometimes you gotta you gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. And that's, you know, that's where we ended up here. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. The Roddenberry Podcast Network is at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you can find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, The Visitor. Roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.